that's good. Uh, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4 tonight, so you'll have to go there because you won't be able to look on the screen. You'll have to look at my pretty face and not look at the screen tonight, all right? Um, I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry about that. Uh, in Ephesians, we in chapter 1 through 3, we talked about how those the first three chapters were about where we are positionally in Christ. How many are so glad that God has positioned us and has given us a place to stand in him? If you didn't say amen, we're going to open up the altars, all right? <laughs> um, but now we're moving into uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and the back part of this book, which is more uh, practical, and it's practically, we'll, we can practically walk it out. And so I think I mentioned this in week, um, in, in chapter 2, it goes from, from belief to behavior. And we're talking about doctrinal or stance or from uh, uh, positional to practicality. It goes from belief to behavior, from doctrinal to duty, from position to practice, from revelation to responsibility. So now we've learned about who we are positionally in Christ. So now we're going to learn how to walk it out. Everyone look at your neighbor and say, walk it out. So Paul uses this... Um, Man, I have no idea what's going on with my, my man, technology is messing up on me tonight. Uh, Paul uses the word mystery um, six times in the book of Ephesians, a total of nine times, depending on if you believe if he wrote Hebrews or not. Some scholars say yes, some say no. It's just a matter of that. But the total of nine times mystery. Um, we talked about mystery uh, not being a, a whodunit. How many like a good mystery book? Two people like a good mystery. How many like a good mystery? Any Sherlock Holmes people in, in here? No, a few people, all right. Um, but it's not that type of mystery. It's not a who, uh, who, who, uh, who done it, but it's something that is revealed for the right time. It's something that, it, that was there, but then was revealed at the right time. And it's always been there, but it's, been, but it's just been made known. And so it's not a who did it, it's he does it, all right? And so chapter 1, we talked about the mystery, and I want to just focus on that word mystery for just a moment. In chapter 1, we talked about the mystery of God's will, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, that's a mouthful to say right there, that God would bring all things together in Christ. That is, that is what the Lord is, uh, uh, is, is doing, and, and it is the, uh, the God's will is that the dispensation of the fullness of time that God would bring all things together. Here's the key, in Christ. There's the key, in Christ. And the mystery of his will, we talked about that in chapter 1. And, and here's the thing, it's all about Jesus, everything. When you are a believer, it's all about, and, and as a believer, you, know you want to know what God's will is. Make it about Jesus, and that's the will of God. It, it, is, it is that simple. But in chapter 2, we see the mystery, Paul, he further explains it, um, of Jesus breaking down the wall of partition between the Jews and the Gentiles. How many remember me talking about that? I made mention to uh, uh, when, when Reagan made his statement in uh, 1984, when I was two years old. No, I was three years old. In 1984, when he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Walls were meant to divide and to separate. And how many know that we have a lot of walls that can separate us at this point in time? Never in my life have I seen such a divided 
time where it's this or that or them and they. And, and so Jesus, when he came, he tore down the partition between the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and the Jews, believe this, the Jews believed that the Gentiles were for the stoking of the flames in the fire in hell. That's, that's how bad they looked down upon the Gentiles. And the Gentiles looked at the Jews and said, you guys are superstitious, you're full of rituals, and you're, you're legalists. And so they had these, these view on each other, and they didn't get along. And the mystery that God, the mystery here that Paul's talking about is God takes the Jews and the Gentiles, and he makes them into one new body. And you know what that is? It's called the church. He brings them together. And I, I think I made mention to this maybe last week or the week before. I can't remember. But I said, think about the, 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 a group of people or a person that you do not like. And when Jesus came to the Jews, he looked at the Gentiles and said, hey, I'm going to graft them in. And I'm going to bring them in. And so the mystery there is that God takes the Jews and the Gentiles and makes them one new body, which is the church, and that's you and me. And all divisions are knocked down because of Christ. How many know that, that Christ came at, to knock down walls, walls of sin? And, and, and he came to knock down the walls between the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and he wanted everyone to be united in Christ, for Christ, because of Christ. And one day, our hope, and, and we know this, one day in heaven, all things are going to come together. Because Christ is pulling them up. We talked about the mystery in, in chapter 1. He's bringing all things together in heaven. Finally, all things will be known through Christ in heaven. Amen. So chapter 3, the mystery is further revealed that the angels and the principalities and rulers of heavenly places will know the purpose of God's grace within each and every one of us as we are living. And so I made mention to this. What it, there's different rankings of demons and and, and angels, and, and, and I don't have time to really kind of go into all that, but this is what Paul says in chapter 3. We are trophies of God's grace. We are trophies of God's grace. Matter of fact, the angels look at us, and they, they have trouble understanding why God tolerates us or why God gives us grace. But when the dispensation of time, when all this comes together, they're going to look and go, man, God, you are so gracious to them. So I don't know about you, but Paul, he's talking about this, and he says, this is a big deal, and he is pumped to discuss it and reveal it to you and to me. And so we're going to look at this. If you need a, a, a subheading here in chapter 4, the first one, first part of this chapter talks about unity in the body of Christ. Unity in the body of Christ. And, and starts like this. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord. Um, and you've heard me say this in references uh, in the past that when you see the word therefore in the Bible, we have to stop and ask, what is it there for? That's it. That's it. Really, so it's there. So what is it there for? So Paul is saying this, a prisoner of the Lord, he's, he's actually in jail, a Roman prison when he's writing this. But he doesn't give the, the Roman centurions or the Roman government the, the, uh, the, just the knowledge that, that he's in jail with them. He is a prisoner of the Lord. Prisoner of Christ, he says. And so, and, and before we can walk, listen, it says that before we can walk in spiritual truths or practical elements 
of the last half of Ephesians, we have to understand where we sit positionally in the Lord. So I talked about Ephesians being broken to three into two different parts. Without chapters one through three, chapters four through six leads only to frustration, legalism, and rebellion. You know why? Because we can't do it on our own. We have to know whose we are and where we stand positionally and who, who Christ has called us, out, uh, called us to be. And so uh, that's why Paul here in this very beginning, he says, and he, this is the center of the book. He says this right there at the beginning. That's why Paul says, therefore, therefore, in light of all you have, in light of all that's been done, in light of, all of, of, of who you are in Jesus Christ, he says this, walk worthy. Walk worthy. So, so look at this. It reads on. He, he says this, I urge you to walk in a manner, what is it? Worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So in the second half of Ephesians, and I, and I know I'm, I'm bringing this out, but there, we're going somewhere with this. The second half of Ephesians, the emphasis is on walking. Everyone say walking. In addition uh, to his appearance here, uh, the Apostle Paul uses the word walk four times from this point on to the end of this book. Four, four different times. I'll, I'll give you the reference here. First, he tells us, number one, in, in this chapter, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, he tells us to walk in unity. Everyone say walk in unity. Secondly, he tells us to walk in purity. All right, good. That's, that's the, the, the last half of this of this chapter and into chapter 15. Thirdly, he tells us to walk in harmony. And you say, well, that sounds an awful lot like unity. Harmony can be a lot like unity, but it's to, to, to walk with a purpose. So look at this. Fourth one, he tells us to walk in victory. And you can find that in, in the sixth chapter. So look at this. Verse, verse 2 says this, with all humility and gentleness. And when we are, um, I, I like that. Uh, when we are free from works-oriented Christianity, we will walk with humility and gentleness. When it's not about what I'm doing and when it's not about, uh, you know, how many alms I, I give to the Lord, when it's not about works, you understand what I'm saying, there's, there's a gentleness and a humility to us. So it won't, it won't be about your dedication or your diligence and your devotion, your piety, your purity, or your prayer. Instead, when we understand this, when we're walking right, we'll understand uh, that everything that we are is because of God's loving kindness. doesn't matter how good I walk. It's only because of God, because of his generosity, because of his mercy, and because of his goodness. I stand here today because of those things, not because of anything I've done. So the word humility, and other translations uh, may say lowliness, your Bible may say lowliness, is the first time in Greek literature that the Greek word was used in a positive light, lowliness. Paul's saying, walk in lowliness, walk in humility. How many people have you ever heard teach that outside of the Bible? You don't hear that very often outside of the Bible. You never hear people walk. No, we, we, you, you, especially today, you hear, you know, be ferocious. Go, go mow over whoever you have to climb on top of to climb the corporate ladder. It doesn't, you know, it's not about lowliness, but this is, a, this is, this is amazing. He, it uses this word in a positive light. And it's normally used in a negative light. And Jesus and Matthew would say this, I am meek and lowly. 
It's not about you. And 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 you need to understand. You just it's about being real. And it's about being down to earth. Don't esteem yourself highly above anybody else. Let me tell you something. When you start esteeming yourself, you're going to be like Humpty Dumpty. You're going to have a great fall. All right. The next portion of that scripture says, with patience. And the King James Version says, long-suffering, which means exceeding patience. There's a difference between patience and exceeding patience. How many know sometimes you need exceeding patience with your kids? Sometimes you need exceeding patience with your spouse. And this word means uh, one who could strike back but does not. How many times have you struck back? You could have walked in long-suffering. You could. Doesn't mean you should. And it's about meekness. It's about being under control. And I like I like that I like that verbiage, one who could strike back but does not. And and it's like it's like this a person who could say, I could take you down, but I choose not to because of Jesus. How much more patient you and I would be if we understood just how patient God is with us. Would you put up with yourself if you were God? Probably wouldn't do that in my own sense. I, I wouldn't even be here. That's how, that's how bad I'd be on myself. I would have blasted myself a long time ago, but God is gracious and he loves us, right? He's been so patient with us. He's been so long-suffering with you. When you've made knucklehead decisions, guess what? He's still there with his grace saying, I love you. It's going to be all right. Get back up. Dust yourself off. Let's keep walking. And he continually puts up with us. So we must be those who are patient with others because God's been gracious to you. You ought to be gracious to other people. You're a representation of Jesus Christ. And when people know you're a Christian and you're not gracious and you're not merciful and when you cast judgment and you're fast to, to, to get on to somebody, let me tell you what, people take recognition of that. They see that. We must be those who extend mercy, not just extend mercy, but extend it lavishly. You know what that means? Just keep throwing it out there. I don't know about you. I've some mercy lavishly in my life at times. And, and, and we should bestow grace freely. So the next portion of Scripture says, bearing with one another in love. Verse 3 says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. We're talking about walking in unity in, in the bond of peace. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There's a lot of alls in that last little bit. There's, I think, five of them right there. So bearing with one another in love. Let me tell you something. One of the best ways that we can be long-suffering is to bear in love each other's burdens. Um, I don't know about you. There's... When you bear, <laughs> when you bear with one another in love, think about this. You don't have to always make your point in an argument. I'm learning this in my life. 
I'm probably, you know, reaching the middle of my life. And I'm learning this finally that I don't always have to make my point. My wife's back there going, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Surprised she's not shouting back there. When was the last time you were eager to maintain unity in a situation rather than get your point across? Maybe main, uh, maybe maintain unity in the situation with your wife or with your husband or with your coworker or with your boss or with your friends. Because we're all in this together. We're all recipients of God's grace and kindness. There's no room to say, well, I'm better than you. Because the truth is we're all on the same playing field of grace. I'm more holy than you. We're all on the same playing field. Rather, the scripture tells us here, Paul's saying there's one body, there's one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And there's no room for division, dividing, or splintering. Simply put, walk together in unity. Look at your neighbor and say, let's walk together in unity. Verse 7 says this, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Although there is unity in the body of Christ, there is also diversity. Though we are one, you know what unites us? Jesus Christ. But there's a lot of diversity in here. How many people like Mexican food? How many people like Italian food? How many people like Chinese food? Y'all same people, just keep raising your hand. How many of you like food? All right. That was not a good diversity in this room right now. But there's a lot of diversity in this room. There's different likes. There's different desires. Some people like, like you know, certain preachers. Some people like certain worship styles. Some people like certain things. And some people have, we all have differences, right? And, and the thing about diversity is, is this. We're, we're diverse, but we're all united together uh, in Christ by Christ. That's the common ground. That, that's us. And there are differences among each of us. Different gifts we offer, and, and we all bring something different to the table. Matter of fact, I'll give you a good example. I can sit up here and talk in front of you and this, but you know what? My wife is a good administrator, and she can put things in order, and it makes me look good. So there's different gifts there, but if we reversed roles, she would be mad at me, and everything would be chaos if I was administrating alone. So there's different gifts and different things that we can bring. And, and how many know that our bodies are made of different organs and parts? They all work together. And if your body is healthy, your liver's not fighting with your eyeballs. They're on the same page. We're trying to do the same thing. We're trying to get up. We're trying to live every day. We're trying to, to be healthy and, 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 and create. And the same thing goes for us. I, I begin to think about that. The eyes aren't good at smelling. Right? Anybody ever just been like, oh, let me smell this candle and put it up to your eye? Maybe you can smell with your eyes. I don't know. And, and, and here's what I know. My hands can't pump blood through my body. But my heart can. And, and my lungs, they don't make very good feet. Right? And so... Each, each part plays a part, and it, they all serve their reason. So, so each part is important, it, and it's what we need to know. We can be diverse in the kingdom of God with unity. 
All right? Verse 8 says this. Therefore, it says, when he ascended, talking about Jesus on high, he led a host of captives and, and gave gifts to them. Verse 9. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? Verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that we might fill all things. I know that's a mouthful and that's a lot, but we're going to pull that apart. Um, so uh, looking at this, he's quoting Psalm 68, 18. Paul gives the answer. After Christ was crucified, before he ascended to heaven, uh, he first ascended to the lower parts of, of, of the earth, into Hades, okay, into Hades, what we call uh, it's also known as the place of the dead or what we would call hell. And, 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 and in doing so, after he was crucified, he went down to hell. He fulfilled the prophecy of Matthew. Matthew 6, 4 says this, an, ev an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, Jesus speaking here, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And so he left them and departed. So he's talking to the Pharisees there. So what is he saying there? What is Jesus saying there? Just like Jonah was in the belly of a well for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the earth for three days and three nights at the center of the earth. And he would descend to hell before he would ascend to heaven, okay? So Jesus spoke in a parable in, in Luke 16, and he talked about, so you can better wrap your head around this. He talked about Abraham's bosom. Anybody ever, ever heard that story? Maybe if you had a King James Version, in your Bible it may say, or paradise, or Sheol, or, or hell. And what we have to know is the Old Testament believers in God would, would, would dwell and look forward to the coming Messiah where Jesus went after he died. So what would happen in the Old Testament when someone followed God because they weren't allowed to go to heaven yet because Jesus had not done what he needed to do on the cross? The hell was split into two parts. There was the this this side called paradise, and then there was a side called Hades, okay? So the paradise side, that's why Jesus on the cross would, would look at the uh, look at the thief on the cross and say, today I'll be with you where? In paradise. So he knew he was going there. And so uh, so everyone in the Old Testament, they would go there. Paradise, much better than hell. Matter of fact, if you think about uh, the story where Jesus talks about Lazarus and, and the rich man, and, and, and he's, he's crying out. He said, I just want a drink. He's crying out in to, to the other man, and he's saying, hey, I, I need I need just just a just something to to ease the pain right now, just a drop of water on my mouth. And that tells us the difference there. And so uh, so we need to understand this. The Old Testament people were unable to go to heaven yet because Jesus had not yet died for their sins. They went to paradise. And if you need a reference for that, you can write this down. Luke 16, 22 through 31. And Isaiah 61 says this. He opened prison doors talking about Jesus, talking about prophesying ahead. So what happened, these Old Testament characters, there they are in paradise. Jesus goes down to paradise. He opens the prison doors. And so after he ascends, they're able to go to heaven. So after Jesus died, he went to Abraham's bosom, just so we were on the same page, or paradise, where those Old Testament believers were then able to go to heaven. And that's where they are today. Not only that, but according to this verse, he gives gifts to men, and, and uh, amazing that that three days after being crucified, how do I want to say this, by by us, say, I didn't crucify Jesus, but our, our nature did, by us, for we all turned our backs on him, and scripture says, we are all like sheep, have gone astray, 
right? We, we, we go our own ways, what the scripture tells us. And it says this, our Lord is so magnificent and so generous and so merciful and kind that he heaped on us not grief and guilt, but he gave us gifts. And what are those gifts? Well, we got to keep reading on. So look at this. Verse 11 says this. Um, I got the wrong. I got to remember which device I have. I'm trying to do too many things here. And he, he gave first one. Here's the first gift. He gave the apostles. The apostles, okay? Uh, the apostles are, if you want to know what this is, it's a governing ministry. Um, some are called to be apostles. The, the apostolic ministry is a governing ministry, and it refers to those who were sent out as spiritual statesmen to establish ministries. And there are three kinds of apostles. I'm gonna, I want to show you this. Look at this. God the Father appointed one apostle, his sent one, Jesus Christ. That is the, the, the numero uno apostle, okay? Look at this. And then Jesus, in turn, you remember, he came down to earth, and he appointed 12 apostles that walked with him. So here's the third one. And then the Holy Spirit appointed apostles, and I can give you uh, uh, Adronicus and Junia and Timothy and Titus, Paul and Barnabas, and a host of others. And all these people were there to establish ministries. The third type of this type, uh, the third type of apostles are who we are at today. There are still apostles that are still acting in this gift. Here's the second gift that he gave us. He gave us prophets. Everyone say the prophets. And prophets are guiding. You can read in the Old Testament where you would learn of prophets, and they would, they would tell things. And the prophetic ministry is a guiding ministry and refers to those who speak the word of the Lord, uh, 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 the word of the Lord. And so look at this, 1 Corinthians, if you need a reference, 1 Corinthians uh, 14.3 says this. And I'm going to read this out of the King James Version. You're going to hear a lot of, a lot of, you can hear it. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men here's the, here's the three things that a prophet should be doing uh, speaketh unto men for edification that means to build up that means to build up second one is exhortation sometimes that means a little bit of course correction but exhortation and here's the third one and comfort so prophetic words are given to help guide or correct course they're also given to encourage i remember one time i had a guy who came and and wanted to give a prophetic word and and let me just say this be careful who you who you allow to speak into your life sometimes i, I if if you uh, just be careful at times but I, I i was i was young in the faith and i had a guy and i'm not going to tell you what he what he came up to me and he's and he began to just pray for me and he began to prophesy over me and he said some things that were like, no. And he said, does that, does that ring in your spirit? And I'm like, no. And, and listen, if it doesn't, listen, sometimes people fail. Sometimes people miss hearing God. Sometimes people aren't, are acting in their own flesh at, at moments. People fail at this, okay? Uh, you understand that. But if, if they ask you, uh, just say, does that, does, that, does, that, does that resonate with your spirit? If it doesn't, just tell them. It, it's one of the best things you can do rather than just be like, oh, yeah, just and but uh, but if a prophetic word goes against this is what you need to know. If a prophetic word goes against the word of God, throw it out. If it does not line up with the word of God, 
It's not a prophetic word from God. God is a man that he cannot lie. And if it goes against anything in this book, it is a lie. Can I tell you something? God's not going to prophesy to you. Oh, you should go uh, marry this person if you're married. Just saying, if it goes against the word of God, and, and listen, and so that's the second gift. It is, and if it doesn't line up with the word of God, or if it's far over in the left field, and it, it just doesn't resonate with you, and, and if you're not sure, hey, you know what? I'll pray with you about it. You can call me if you're not sure about a certain thing. We'll pray about it. I'm not the end-all, be-all, but I'll definitely lead in prayer and give you as much wisdom because I've dealt with some situations where I had some people prophesy over me, and it was wacky and way out in the left field. It wasn't right. Say, oh, man, you're being really hard on the prophets. Well, they make mistakes sometimes, and they mess up, and, and I think that's a, a ministry that or a gift that you have to grow into. It really is. It is. It's just that thing. But so here's the second one was the prophets. Here's the third gift, the evangelist. Everyone say the evangelist. And the evangelist, their job is this, the gathering ministry. They pull people together. Evangelist ministry is a gathering ministry that refers to those who bring people to the kingdom. And when I thought about this, the person that popped out in my mind was Billy Graham. Probably uh, one of the greatest evangelists in my lifetime that I that I can imagine. The guy was preaching the gospel. I mean, I mean, probably up until his 80s, and continuing to just love on people and to let people know about the love of Jesus Christ. So that is a gathering. People are sharing the gospel. Here's the fourth one: the shepherds. And if you have a King James version, it actually says pastors, shepherds, or a pastor is the guarding ministry, and the, the pastoral ministry is a guarding ministry and refers to those who protect the flock from the wolves who seek to destroy them. And shepherds direct, they lead and guide. Matter of fact, when I was uh, living in California where we lived, and there was a bunch of um, Bureau of Land Management land, and the, so every once in a while these, these groups of sheep would just come through, and there would be a shepherd who would watch these sheep on the side of the road, and they would just let them just kind of graze if, if there was really much to eat out there in the fields anyways in California. But they would let them graze out there in, in the fields. And I remember one time, um, uh, you know, I got a call, and I was working, uh, and I was a dispatcher, and I got a call from a guy, and he said, hey, uh, I'm sorry to bother you. It was like 2 in the morning. He said, I'm sorry to bother you. I just hit a sheep. And I was like, how did you hit a sheep? He said, well, I was just driving down the road. And he goes, and then a, a, just a bunch of sheep just started crossing the road. And he said, I tried to stop. And he said, I just hit one. And, you know, and I said, well, are you all right? Yeah, you're all right. And, and what had happened is the shepherd had lost sight of the sheep. And this is what happened. And this is what we got to know about people. People are like sheep. We want to do what we want to do. But let me tell you something. Sometimes the shepherd knows things that the sheep don't know. And oftentimes, and here's another thing. Here's another characteristic of sheep. Sheep like to bite. Sheep like to butt heads. Right? Anybody ever been nipped by a sheep? By a lamb? Anybody been bumped by a, by a sheep? No, no 4-H's in here? Oh, you guys need to go to the fair or something, all right? Um, but, but here's what happens. Sheep 
in their, in their just wander. They'll just do whatever they want. And sheep get away from the herd, and sheep will put themselves in danger. And that's the purpose of the shepherd is to keep them safe. The shepherd is there to overlook the sheep and look and see if there's, there's, a, there's a predator stalking them and go, hey, there's a wolf over there. Let me go over there. Let me make some noise. Let me scare this wolf away. Or he sees that the land is about to, they're, they're on a very, you know, maybe on a, a, a ravine and they could fall and get them away from the ravine and see sometimes as a shepherd and as a pastor you tell people till you're blue in the face get away from the ravine and they're like that it's true but a shepherd's job is to direct and to lead as a shepherd this is listen you say oh you know I, I understand I'm the pastor I understand I'm the shepherd of this flock but listen I take my orders from the good shepherd. I'm not doing it just because of what I want to do. I, I take my orders from the good shepherd, and I, I seek his counsel, and I ask him, and I look in his word and try to understand, hey, this is how he would do it. Not how TJ wants to do it, but how would the Lord have me to do this? Here's the last one. And teachers. The, uh, the teaching ministry is this. It is a grounding ministry. Grounding ministry. What do you mean by that? It means it, it gets people rooted into, it gets God's people rooted into the truth of his word. This is what we're doing tonight. This is a grounding place. We're learning God's word. And, the, and this ministry is important. And many people are excited to be a part of this ministry. And they want to teach. And they like the office of this ministry. But, but this is what James chapter 3 says. That if you are a teacher, you will be, uh, you will have a greater responsibility or the Lord will more strictly judge you by how you teach. So, you're saying, oh, man, now I don't want to be a teacher anymore, right? But, but the, the, the issue with that is you better know what God's word says and you better know how the Lord's speaking it, okay? And then sometimes it happens. Sometimes men get up here and sometimes their opinions flow out versus the word of God. We're all human. We all make mistakes. And, and the more that I'm up here, and I think I said this in our study of James, the more that I speak, the more of a chance that I'm going to say something stupid. It's just odds. Statistic odds. It's, it's statistically, I can't even say that word, statistically probable that I'm going to say something stupid because that's just this is what going to be. And, but, you know, so, so there are teachers, those who keep us grounded, all right? Verse 12 says this, and so we have all that list right there, all that list to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. That's the whole purpose of all these ministries is this. The church of Jesus Christ exists for three reasons. Are you ready for this? This ought to be in every church's mission statement. Number one, to exalt God. That's why we come in, that's why we sing, that's why we praise, that's why we lift up the name of Jesus, why we pray, all right? Secondly, to edify his people, which is the edification of the saints, which is why we study his word. This is why you're here today, so you can learn, it's so you're growing. Look, here's the third one, to evangelize the unsaved, which is why we preach salvation. And the church does not exist primarily, and, and this is probably going to blow a lot of you, I'm talking about the physical church here does not exist primarily to evangelize. It exists to build saints so they can in turn go out and evangelize. I know I said a lot right there. Listen, the church, it's like this. 
It's like that this church is a filling station. Your job is to come get filled up by the Lord and to go out and be about the Lord's work and evangelize. Because here's the thing. Your ministry, your ministry is when you go to work. Your ministry is when you're out and about and you're doing things in town. And your ministry is your family and your home. That's your ministry. That is your ministry. And so to evangelize, to evangelize. And, and I, think, I think once you've been in church for a while, you kind of get it backwards and you think, oh, well, we're preaching up here to reach the lost here. But when it, we're, you come here to be equipped to go out and to win the lost. That's, that's the way it's designed. And, and, and so, you know, we get that. But this is, this is like a, this is like a, in reality, it happens, uh, when we do ministry, it happens at your school, it happens at your job, it happens with your buddies, it happens when you're working out, it happens when you're eating a burger. You didn't realize that you were evangelizing when you were eating a burger with maybe one of your friends who doesn't know Jesus, but you are. In Acts, the early church broke bread together, then they left and turned and flipped the world upside down. That's what that was their model. Look at this, verse thirteen. Until we all attain to the unity, remember we're talking about unity. Till we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You know what our goal is? Our goal is to be like Jesus. Your goal should be to be like Jesus. Every day you ought to get up and say, Lord, let, help me to be more like you today. Help me to love on more people. Help me to be gracious to more people. Not just to know stuff. And oftentimes we do this. We, we love scripture. We, lo- we know things about the word of God. We, we all have a lot of head knowledge. But just the head knowledge itself is not what it's all about. It's not just about knowing a lot about the Lord, but it's to know him. Know him in a in 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 a in a way a, a a way of intimacy. Jesus did not spend his life hanging out in the temple. He went to the temple. That's not where he did his ministry. You remember where he did his ministry? Oh, at a well. Walking down the street. He was out among the people, impacting the world and the church. And I said this, the church is a filling station so we can be revived, we can get the power of God, so we can keep on going, so we can come in here, get filled up, go out week to week, pour out what God has given us, come back in, get filled up, learn a little bit more, go out, be a better, and it's, this is just an edification, this is a place to sharpen you to be a better evangelist. You didn't know that all of us are called to be Billy Graham. That doesn't mean you're going to get up and speak in front of thousands and thousands of people. But you can be the Billy Graham at your job. Maybe you have five people that work for it. Guess what? You can be as effective as Billy Graham in your work by just living it out and evangelizing Jesus in the way that, that you can. Look at this. Verse 14 says this. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro. We talked about maturing in the last verse. Uh, to and fro for by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. By human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. The church, I said it earlier, the church is this. It's for our growth so that we can mature. If you're in the same place that you were with God a year ago, you're messing up. You should be, you should be further along. You should be more mature. You should be growing. 
And the goal of the church is, is one of spiritual maturity to conform and to strive and to be like Jesus. Remember I said you ought to be like Jesus? Well, that should be your goal every day. Say, oh, I don't think I'll ever be like, that's not the point. Just keep striving and doing your best. And here's the problem. You know, oftentimes there's many new doctrines that flow around or experiences. And this would be, this would be a word of wisdom to anybody if there's something going around. If you can't find it in the gospel, the book of Acts, or in the epistles, that should throw up a red flag to you. Otherwise, like this verse, it's just a breeze blowing, blowing people around to and fro as you into where they walk. Verse 15. Rather, speaking with truth in love. Everyone say truth in love. We are to uh, grow up. Grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So, um, I don't know about you, on a cold winter night, I'm drawn to my fireplace. Anybody have a fireplace? You know me, I have a thing with fire, so I'm always drawn to a fire, right? I'm like a bug, you know. Uh, but I'm drawn to my fireplace on a cold winter night because it does something for me. It provides light and it provides warmth. It's perfect, right? And so it is the perfect combination of truth and love in our lives. Truth without love is like the light of the fire without warmth. Doesn't do a whole lot of good, right? And love without truth is like the heat of the fire without the light. So truth without love makes people cold in the light, and love without truth makes people stumble in the dark. I said a whole lot there. Let me repeat that. Love without truth is like the heat of the fire without light. Truth without love makes people cold in the light, and love without truth makes people stumble in the dark. Thus, we need both. It's not enough just to love. Love, 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 love. I can love on people till I'm blue in the face. But there's a point in Scripture where the truth of God has to be spoken in truth and in love. And here's the flip side of that. I can't be so, so much about the truth that, I, that I'm, I'm pounding people on top of the head with my Bible. And I'm just like, get saved, get saved. It says this, and there's no love in my heart. The Bible says, you know, if we're doing those things and if we're like a, like a, like a, like a gong, loud gong, or like clashing cymbals, oftentimes I think we've misbalanced here and we've misbalanced here when we should be here and we should be telling people, I love you, but this is what the Word of God says. This is the truth of God. And let me tell you something, I love you enough to tell you the truth because I want to see you in hell. Verse 16 says this, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped with when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it is built itself up in love. You know, each one of you has a role to play just as the joints in our physical body, they're put together. And if we didn't have tendons and ligaments, our movements would be terrible, Right? We'd be in a lot of pain because our joints, I mean, all you got to do is, is throw out one of your ligaments and, and try to walk around. How's that work out for you? It hurts, right? And we would be in pain and we would be uh, spastic in our movements at best, right? The same is true spiritually. Can I tell you something? 
Look at someone in the room. Anybody in the room. You need that person. You need that person. We need each other. And the Lord has brought us together in order that together we can conform to him. So here's the second part of this chapter. We're going to get through this chapter by faith. Everyone say by faith tonight. We're going to get through this chapter. Uh, if you need a, a second subheading to the second part of this chapter is this, uh, the new life. Everyone say the new life. Verse 17 says this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So not only are we to walk in unity, but Paul says this, put away vanity. This is going to be a tough one for some of us. This is a tough one for me. Empty-headedness. Got a lot of that. And walk in purity. David said this prayer in Psalm 51. He said, Lord, create in me a clean heart. If you haven't read Psalm 51, you ought to go back and read it every once in a while. It's just a, it's a, it's a dandy. Um, but he says, create in me a clean heart. And he also goes on to say, and renew in me the right spirit. So many times I've had to pray that in my life. God, create in me a clean heart. God, help me renew my spirit, Lord. But this is what I know. David couldn't clean his heart, right? He depended on the Lord to change his heart, but he could change his mind. And we can't change our hearts, but we can change our mind. So, and this is what happens with us. Uh, if we, we justify activities and habits, we say, oh, you know, it's, it's okay if I do this. It's all right if I do this. But here's what I know. If I change my mind, God will change my heart. If I change my mind, God will change my heart. But look at this. He won't change my heart until I change my mind. Create in me a clean heart, Lord. David had to come to his mind and eventually say, God, create in me a clean heart. That's the part. I, I can, I can, I'm right here in my mind. I know where I want to be. But, God, I need you to do what you do. Wash me with hyssop here. Verse 18 says this. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So why... Why are people around us so spiritually blind and blind to the truth? You ever feel like sometimes that all the people around you, like, how can you be missing this? How, how do you not see this? Well, Romans 1 says it like this. It's, it's, uh, it's because instead of worshiping God, they profess to be wise in themselves. Romans 1, 22. And oftentimes when we put our stock in us and not in the Lord, we're blinded by our own, our own, I guess our own in intellect at times. Verse 19, they have become callous and given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The great preacher from a generation ago, Dr. Donald Barnhouse, he, he gave a uh, uh, gave this story on the repercussion of sin, and he preached a sermon on the repercussion of sin. And a young man came to him and said, I'm a sinner, and, this, and, it, and what you preached didn't really affect me. It doesn't seem to matter if I sin or not. It doesn't hurt me. In which Dr. Barnhouse said, if you were to drop a 800 pounds of weight on a dead body, of course it would not care. It wouldn't even feel it. In essence, what he's saying that when we are callous by sin, 
when we're calloused by greed, when we're calloused by sensuality or impurities, we are spiritually dead, and we don't even understand the weight of sin that is on us. Verse 20, but this is not the way, I like this, Paul says this, but this is not the way you learned Christ. This is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Uh, the world embraces these things, greediness, uncleanness, and empty-headedness. But you, Paul says, he's saying here to the, to the church in, in Ephesus, Paul says, not that, that's not the way you guys, you guys learned Christ. You, I want you to hear the way I'm saying that. They learned Christ. Notice Paul didn't say you haven't learned of Christ that way. Instead, he says you haven't learned Christ that way. I know that sounds very similar. I'm, I'm reading that super fast. I'll give you an example. I, this will just explain it to you. I can read a lot of books about Abraham Lincoln. I can go to the library and grab every book on Abraham Lincoln. I can watch all kinds of documentaries and videos on Abraham Lincoln. I can go to Disneyland and go to the Hall of Presidents and go through it 15 times just so I can hear Lincoln speak. Anybody ever been there? Just me? All right. Well, a few people have been there. And, and, but the truth is I may have all this head knowledge about Abraham Lincoln, but I really don't know who Lincoln is. I know about him, but I don't know, know him. To learn Christ implies this. To learn Christ, here, here I'm saying that, to learn Christ implies communion and intimacy with him. When you're reading, and, and listen, you should read, read the gospel. I think sometimes we get a lot of head knowledge, know of Christ, but we don't know Christ like we should know Christ, and he's begging for us to know him, and he's this, but this is what we ought to do when we're reading the Gospels or you're reading in the Bible and you're reading in John. Read a few verses and stop and pray. I, that's one of the biggest issues with us when we read the Bible. We, we do it out of duty. I'm going to read my chapter a day and move on. But what we should do is slow down, read a little bit, say, hey, Lord, this verse convicts me. Can you speak to me? Why is this verse, why does it convict me or, convict me? or, or this? Or, Lord, this verse confuses me. Can you help me to understand? Holy Spirit, will you begin to download what this verse means to me? Or, or Lord, this verse reminds me of, or Lord, this verse blesses me. In so doing, what happens is when I'm reading the word, I'm not only learning of God, but I'm communing with God, and I'm growing in intimacy with God. I'm knowing him personally rather than merely learning of him academically. Find a place and take time to talk to the Lord and learn of him. Maybe it's your drive to work. Talk to the Lord on the way to work. You'll show up and you'll be in a much happier mood. Verse 22 says this, to put off your old self. As you learn Christ, you'll find yourself changing your mind about everything. How many remember the day you got saved? The old man was washed away and the new man came, right? There was a change inside of you. Matter of fact, Romans 12, 2 says, you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may know what is good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Scripture also says, old things are passed away, and behold, all things are made new. Paul's saying this, all that old stuff, put it away. All that greediness, all that you used to be, just take it off. Get rid of it. 
Look at this. It says, the next portion of this says, which belongs to your, your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Verse 24, and put on the, the new self. Everyone say the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Amen. Everyone say new self. All right, look at this. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood or lying, Paul doesn't say this. And, 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 and Paul doesn't say, hey, go to counseling to overcome the dysfunctional tendencies or exaggeration or miscommunication. How many, how many have ever met someone who is an exaggerator? I have a couple friends. Sometimes I don't know if I should believe them or not believe them because they exaggerate so often, right? You know the type, right? And you're like, is that really true? Are you just exaggerating to the nth degree, right? And, and But Paul's saying this, therefore, having put away falsehood or this, I'll put it to you in the good old uh, Lawrence County way, stop lying. It's that simple. Stop lying. He's simply saying that. Stop lying. And in Ephesians chapter 6, we'll be there in a few weeks, hopefully. He says this. He says, put on the belt of truth. Talking about the armor of God. I have a lot to say about that when we get there. Therefore, having put away falsehood, stop lying. Look at this. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. If Here's a, a, a good or a bad example. I don't know. If I touch a hot stove with my hands and my nerves lie, lie to my brain and tell, tell them that my hand is not on a hot stove, what's going to happen? Not rocket science. I'm going to get burnt. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to get burnt. So, so. So it is, so it's the same thing in the body of Christ. When we lie to one another, everybody gets hurt. So in the body of Christ, we're going to be walking in unity. We're going to be walking in love with one another. Hey, we've got to learn to speak the truth. Sometimes that's hard. Sometimes that's tough. And sometimes we just got to go and say, I really don't want to have this conversation with you, but this is for your benefit. Here's what the truth is. Look at this, verse 26. I, I promise we're going to get through this. Be angry and do not sin. You ought to circle that in your Bible. You ought to write that on your wall in your bedroom. <laughs> be angry and do not sin. So how do we be angry without sinning? As always, Jesus is the best example. Jesus grew angry in the temple and he overturned the, the tables in the temple, right? Cracked the whip. But I want you to look at something. He was not angry because his feelings were hurt or because he was being ignored. Oftentimes when we get angry, we get angry because it's something within us that's hurt, right? He wasn't angry about what was happening to him, but what he was mad about was the fact that his father's house <laughs> was, was what it was. Uh, was I'm sorry, I got a text right there in the middle of all this. I'm distracted. Okay, devil, you're a liar. All right. But but what he the reason he did that was because it was a distraction to people who would come to the temple to worship. People had made it a place to make money. 
It was a distraction to him. And so he was, he was more angry about that than he was about uh, himself. I can't help but think in our world uh, that, that has become so feeling driven, right? Everything's feelings. Oh, I can't do it. You know, and, and, and that's all, we're, we're beings. We're made of feelings. But listen, that we have become angry with our feelings and sinned versus there's a difference between uh, righteous indignation uh, where, where, where Jesus was at. He had righteous indignation because people were doing bad. They were wrong. So he did it for justice purpose. And when we've opened the door in our lives and we've made it about us, not about the Lord. Lord, it's about my feelings. I'm angry because me. Jesus, if he ever did get angry, it was for others who were being mistreated, not for himself. Oh, I don't like that. I don't like that as a pastor. Next part, part of this. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You ought to circle that and write that on your wall in your house. <laughs> Popular verse, we like to quote that, but let me tell you something. It is very potent. So here's what happens. We go to bed angry. Anybody ever went to bed angry at your spouse? Kristen, raise your hand. We're going to have a fight right here. No, no. Uh, <laughs> Here's what happens. When we go to bed angry and we haven't resolved anything and we haven't made peace in our hearts, what happens is we go to bed and we wake up the next day. And let me tell you something. Our tone is set the next day. Because you wake up and you look over at your, your spouse and you're still mad at them. You're like, mm-hmm. Right? And, and, and you are in error. And, and, and this is what you have to do. If, if you can't meet with that person or whatever the case, if, you know, overnight or whatever, you ought, to, you ought to bathe it in prayer with the Lord. And this is what happens. If you go to bed angry, you're in danger. What do you mean by that? I'm going to show you why. Read. Look on. Verse 27 says this. And give no opportunity to the devil. When you go to bed angry, things aren't resolved. Maybe between you and your spouse. That's a perfect example. Or, or between people. This is what happens. Satan can work while you sleep. You're angry with your husband or your neighbor when you go to sleep. You give the enemy the opportunity to plant a root of bitterness within you. What happens is you'll get up the next day. And you'll take that root and you'll just carry it on. Hebrews 12, 15, if you need a reference there. While there is a place uh, for righteous indignation that leads us to pray about an unfair situation or injustice and to seek the Lord for his resolution. Then in, the, in those moments, we've got to seek the Lord. When we seek the Lord first, there's simply no place for the devil in our lives. a lot to swallow right there, but that's, that's good. So why do we not let the sun go down on our anger? Because we don't want to give an opportunity for the devil. You ought to write that on your wall too, just so you make sure you understand why you're doing it. Verse 28, I promise we're almost done. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may be something to share with anyone in need. So just a, a quickly, 
uh, Adam at, in Genesis was a, was a thief. And what did he do? He stole from the knowledge of good and evil, and he ate of something that God told him not to. What happened? He was kicked out of paradise or the Garden of Eden, right? So fast forward with me. Jesus is on the cross. Jesus would declare to the thief on the cross, he would say this, today you will be with me in paradise. So the Lord makes everything different. So, so you know, rather than being a, a thief, so Adam, the original sin, Adam, the original sin, he was a thief. And then Jesus comes and bore our sins, and he opens a way for us. The Lord makes everything different. Thus the Lord would say to those who have a tendency to steal in their time or their money from their employer or the IRS, Here's the practical solution to that. Start working. Start giving to those in need. That's practical. That's practical. That's straight out of the word of God. Look at this. Verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Remember, I, I, I alluded to this story. Peter, when he was warming himself by the fire, there was a servant girl there. And because of his accident, it gave him away, right? It gave him away. She said, you, you're Galilean. I can tell by the way you're talking. I, I know that draw or whatever. And, and, and here's the thing. You can always tell which kingdom a person is from by their speech. The language of the kingdom of darkness and death. Is that of complaining, murmuring, fault-finding, cynicism, cursing, corrupt communication. On the flip side, a person living in the kingdom of light and life, on the other hand, speaks graciously, kindly, using words of hope and thanksgiving. In other words, for Christians, the standard for talk, extremely high. All right, verse 30, I promise, we're, we're getting there. It's, there's only 32 verses left. I'm just kidding, there's only two more verses left. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. When we sin, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And, and, and let, me, let me just preface that. Let me say this. God's not mad at you. When we do that, God's not mad at you. But look, I want to show you something. He's not mad at you. He's mad about you. He's not mad at you. He's still mad about you because this is the way he sees it. He sees it like this. He sees where your sin and your rebellion will lead you to. And seeing you sin to him grieves for you. Kind of like a parent when you watch your kids make some knucklehead decisions and you're grieving you're like please do not do that they do it anyways and you're just like and that's the way God is with us he's not grieved by how you talk can I tell you something God has he heard every possible curse word in the book that doesn't mean that doesn't give you a right to talk and he knows uh, uh, but he's not grieved by how you talk or how anger affects uh, how, it, how it affects him but rather how it affects you so what grieves the Holy Spirit? Verse 31 says this, bitterness towards others, wrath towards others, anger towards others, clamor towards others, slander toward others. And Paul would simply say, put away all those things that, that, and, and have no part with these things along with malice. God is grieved by how these affect you. 
But, but look, his, the practical application of prevention of these things is this. Put them away. Stop doing them. Verse 32 right here. I love how this ends. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. I'm going to repeat that again. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Sharp contrast to bitterness and malice, kindness and forgiveness, delight, uh, delight of the heart or uh, uh, delight the heart of the heavenly Father. So when we do those things, when we are tenderhearted, when we're forgiving, and when we love on people and we forgive people, God looks at that with a tender heart and says, "Ah, that's my nature. That's my nature. Kindness and forgiveness delight the hearts." Uh, of earthly fathers as well. I love it when I see my kids get along and I see them apologize for things that they should apologize for. Forgiveness is not a burden God places on me or us, but rather a safeguard for our mental health and our emotional stability. Scripture would say it like this, treat others the way you want to be treated. That's just good common sense. Scripture would also say this, you know, talking about mercy, it Forgive in the same measure that you want to be forgiven. 